this is the first of three lectures we're going to have this school year hosted by uh, the Tocqueville Forum on Liberal Democracy and the Political Science Department. We're able to have these due to the generous funding of the Jack Miller Center. Today we're very pleased to welcome Professor Vincent Philip Munoz. Professor Munoz is the Tocqueville Associate Professor of Political Science, the concurrent professor, Associate Professor of Law at the University of Notre Dame, and also the founding director of Notre Dame's Center for Citizenship and Constitutional Government. Professor Munoz writes and teaches in constitutional law, American politics, and political philosophy, with a focus on religious liberty and the American founding. He's the author of God and the Founders, Madison, Washington, and Jefferson, which came out in 2009, uh, in which in addition to winning a prestigious award from the American Political Science Association, is one of the few books that actually takes Washington seriously as a political thinker. His, he also has a forthcoming book on the natural right of religious liberty and the original meanings of the First Amendment's religion clauses, which is scheduled for release from the University of Chicago Press sometime next year. He's the editor of Religious Liberty in the American Supreme Court and the co-editor of American Constitutional Law, both of which are leading undergraduate constitutional law casebooks. And he's also published numerous essays in the American Political Science Review, the Harvard Journal of Law and Public Policy, Notre Dame Law Review, American Political Thought, and the University of Pennsylvania's Journal of Constitutional Law. He received his BA at Claremont McKenna College, his master's at Boston College, and his PhD at Claremont Graduate School. He's here today to give us a talk that's titled Natural Rights, Natural Law, and the American Founding. Please give Professor Munoz a very nice person. Can you hear me okay? It's okay in the back? Um, uh, I'm excited to be here in large part because I've never given a lecture with an open bar before. <laughs> so I'm not sure what the custom is here, but you know, don't let me get in your way. Let me just, <laughs> and uh, I join you. I should finish, let me finish the lecture and then I'll pour myself a drink as well. Um, no, I, I'm, oh, thank you to. Uh, Professor Bruto and Professor Burns uh, and the faculty of the Jack Miller Center. Um, I was particularly eager uh, to come here. So I have three little kids, um, and uh, you know, this is like their third week of school, uh, and their mother is not particularly happy that I told her I'm going to you know, take off uh, for a couple of days to come spend some time with you. Um, but I told her this is one of the few colleges where we would send our kids, and I'd never been here. So I'm, I'm eager to talk to you. If I had my way, we'd just skip the lecture and we'd just chat about Christendom and what you like and don't like. Um, but I'm, I'm eager to talk to you, uh, to learn more about the, about the college and, and why you're here and uh, what you like and don't like about it. I, I've admired this place from afar for a long time. So it's, it really is a, a pleasure to be here. Um, this, um, this is the first time I've given this talk. So I'm kind of curious to know what you think. Um, you know, I, I went to a small liberal arts school, um, and in that tradition, uh, you know, you should be critical. I mean, tell me what you don't like. Um, I'm, I'm kind of curious to know what you think of it. I have to say, this is, um, at Notre Dame, we, we customarily don't wear war paint to the lectures themselves, but I like it, so that's good. I want to ask, I'm not sure, you don't have to answer this question if you don't want to, but you should answer it, uh, honestly. Uh, any monarchists in the audience? <laughs> I, I wrote this with you in mind. So. 
All right, so my, my subject for the afternoon is natural rights, natural law, and the uh, American founding, or American constitutionalism, nearly the same, same thing. Okay, I, I'm going to try to persuade you of something. You don't have to be persuaded, but this, I'm going to try to make an argument. And this is it. I get the sense that PowerPoint's not usually used at Christendom. I don't like to use it either, but uh, I thought it might be helpful. So I'm going I'm to make the following argument. That the American founders held that natural rights are part of the natural law, and therefore a natural rights republic, such as America, is compatible with belief in and a commitment to the idea of natural law. And therefore, I know this is for the monarchists, and therefore Catholics and others who champion the natural law tradition can be, perhaps even should be, patriotic and faithful citizens of this republic. I want to pre uh, present this argument to you because a number of leading Catholics today, Catholic intellectuals, contend that these propositions are false and that we should be suspicious of, perhaps even hostile to, uh, the liberal political project, including America. Uh, my, uh, my good uh, friend and colleague, Pat Deneen, in his book, Why Liberalism Failed, uh, has issued a full-blown indictment of America, charging that liberalism's deepest, uh, liberalism's deepest principles are hostile to Christ traditional Christianity. Uh, Harvard Law Professor Adrian Vermeule, another person I admire very much and a friend, uh, has concluded that there's no reason, this is a quote, there's no reason to think a stable long-term uh, rapprochement between Catholicism and the liberal state is realistically feasible. He goes on, because liberalism cannot ultimately tolerate the accommodation of Catholicism in principle while remaining true to itself. Uh, Rod Dreher, another friend, uh, Rod's an Orthodox, uh, has recommended a Benedict option, I'm sure many of you are familiar with that, implicitly rejecting an American option. Even former Philadelphia Archbishop Charles Chaput, uh, who is more friendly towards America uh, in his, his recent book, recognizes that uh, Americans, especially American Catholics, are strangers in a strange land. So is the strangest now engulfing traditional Catholics, cultural uh, prosecution in elite circles, increasing legal pressure in everyday life? Is this increasing hostility to our way of life a product of our liberal principles? Our liberal principles working themselves out, as these critics contend? Is a political order based on natural rights necessarily and essentially hostile to traditional religious belief and practice? That's the question I want to wrestle with. Uh, my answer is I don't, I don't think so. I believe faithful Catholics can and should be patriotic citizens and champion of American principles. The principles that animated our republic, human equality, natural rights, government by consent, religious freedom, these principles do not stand opposed to orthodox religious belief and practice. Uh, we might agree with uh, Rusty Reno, um, editor of First Things, that the American liberal tradition is in trouble. But nonetheless, I believe our founding principles, rightly understood, remain the surest possible means to help us secure return to a decent and just political order. So that's, that's my argument, or that's the outline, the sketching of an argument in a nutshell. Okay, this is what we're going to do. I'm going I'm to begin with, I'll spend a lot of time on um, what I call the radical Catholic critique. I didn't make up that term. That's uh, uh, my, my friend Patrick Deneen, who's championed this position, called himself a radical Catholic. So I don't know if they like that term, but that's the term he used, so that's the term I use. 
I'll begin with the critique of liberalism. I'm gonna spend, I don't know how many of you have read this, so I'm actually gonna spend uh, a, a, a long time on the critique itself. Our monarch friends will, will like this part of the talk. Um, and I wanna to try to be as fair to this position as I can. Then I want to try to attempt to explain how the founders understood to be natural rights to be part of the natural law. And I think this is one of the main things that's not understood well today. And then I'll conclude with a few of my own thoughts about our current political situation. Um, I have to say, um, I know we started a few minutes late. Um, I should ask, how much time do I have? I, I haven't done this lecture. I have no idea how long this is going to take. So uh, tell me how long I have. You could end sometime around five. Dinner starts pretty soon afterwards. Okay, so we'll go to five, five forty-five. <laughs> All right. Okay. According to what my friend Patrick Dean labels the radical Catholic critique, liberalism is a product of emancipation from traditional morality, natural necessity, and any limits on human willfulness. After more than two hundred years, he says, liberalism is playing itself out. Americans have become licentiousness, and they're sexual practices, consumerist in the market, and gluttonous and everything else, because they have been emancipated from everything except their own desires. The decad decadent and deplorable aspects of contemporary American life, this argument goes, reflect not a break from our principles, but actually the fulfillment of them. Uh, in, his, uh, catch in Patrick's catchy phrase, liberalism is failing because liberalism has succeeded. So this argument has three basic claims. First, and most fundamentally, is the assertion that America is animated by a political philosophy that denies the existence of transcendental truths and corresponding moral obligations. For those who have finished the political theory, probably the intro class, it's America's Hobbesian in nature, is their argument. Liberalism, according to this argument, rejects natural law and the related notion of teleology. Liberalism vanquishes the idea of a human good replacing it with neutrality towards competing conceptions of the good. That's John Rawls, if you have to read Rawls here. A little bit, count your blessings, yeah. <laughs> this purported neutrality gives rise to um, the second point, second point of critique. Liberalism conceives the human person as an unbounded, autonomous individual. Liberal neutrality turns out to be anything but neutral. Liberalism smuggles in its own particular understanding of the human person. Liberalism, according to uh, Professor Deneen, I'm quoting here, is most fundamentally constituted by a pair of deeper anthro anthropological assumptions that give liberal institutions a particular orientation and caste. First, anthropological individualism and a voluntaristic conception of choice, and then secondly, human separation from and opposition to nature. And, and um, that seems abstract or confusing. I mean, Transgenderism is a perfect understanding of this. You know, I am what gender I choose to be today, and I might choose to be something else tomorrow. Right. So there's no nature, there's no opposition from nature, and the, the self is a, is a will. I am this identity because I decided to be this identity. Uh, liberalism can't assert a notion of intrinsic moral obligation, according to David Schindler, a very distinguished Catholic theologian, uh, because liberal freedom is, and this is his word, freedom is not orig originally intrinsically conditioned by anything beyond the self. It consists in an act of choice that is a priori unbounded. So in this radical view, liberalism teaches that the essence of man lies in our capacity to make willful choices. 
And even more radically, it declares that there are no wrong, that is liberalism declares that there are no wrong, morally wrong, or bad choices. This is a rejection of classical natural right and Christian natural law, both of which hold that nature establishes moral standards for human behavior. Liberalism, the critics say, rejects morality grounded in nature and in its place promotes a radical modern conception of human autonomy. Man does not take his bearing, bearings from what he is or his place in the created order. Liberal man because somebody, because he creates himself. And as Alistair McIntyre, and for Professor Bruto, because I know he loves McIntyre. The individual moral agent, freed from hierarchy and teleology, conceives himself and is conceived of by moral philosophers as sovereign in his moral authority. We're basically all our own gods. That's liberal individualism. So liberalism, as a political philosophy, replaces duties with rights. Duties, we have rights, reason with preferences, and nature with lifestyle. It denies an objective moral order and emphasizes human willfulness. Uh, under this understanding, America's decline into decadence, relativism, and materialism is the inevitable project of liberalism's political principles. Because every regime, including liberalism, read Aristotle, you understand this. Every regime fosters a type of citizen. So liberalism fosters liberal, liberal citizens. Again, this is the critique. Liberal individuals become relativists because they have no objective standards of right and wrong. Right? You have your values, I have mine. It's sort of the quintessential way many Americans think about things. Liberals become technocratic materialists because they understand, understand nature, including human nature, as something to be controlled and manipulated for our own purposes and desires. And we become hedonistic consumers because we see the proper purpose of life, again, this is the argument, as a temporary satiation of desire. Put all this together, the critics say, and you can understand how American cult culture ushered in and then was easily overtaken by capitalism, nihilism, and the sexual revolution. The perfect fulfillment of, of liberalism, according to the critics, really is abortion. Right? It's not just abortion, it's sexual liberation more generally. Right? And this is all a product of our principles, the argument goes. And if you want to summarize these principles, I don't know if you take American constitutional law here. Right? This is a quote from Justice Kennedy in Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which is ultimately nihilistic to the core. But this is an American Supreme Court justice. Right, the Casey's an abortion case. Okay, that's the argument. And it's a powerful argument. And it's gripped young Catholics in, in particular. I think, it's not like I know. I mean, Casey is a moral and legal abomination. In no way it follows from our principles, the principles of the American founding. Nor do the other ills the radical Catholics lament. So to understand, that's my argument. To understand this, we have to have a proper understanding of the true principles of American liberalism. So let me start with the contention that the political philosophy of the American founding rejects the uh, existence of objective truth. And here, I'm, I'm going to say all sorts of things, which um, you know, they're really going to come across as more of assertions and arguments. You can only do so much. 
Um, you know, if I had four weeks, we would go through these things very carefully, right? Um, but it, does America really believe that there are, are no truths? Well, we should start with the Declaration of Independence, which of course begins with the statement of truth. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they're endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Now, self-evident self doesn't mean obvious or necessarily true, but necessarily known by all. Self-evident is employed in the same way that Thomas Aquinas uses the, the term, right? Of course, per se noted. A self-evident proposition is one in which the predicate is contained within the subject. I'm just going to presume that you all understood what I just said. <laughs> in other words, the Declaration teaches that if we properly understand what man is, the nature of man, we will understand that we are all created equal. So in what sense are we all created equal? I mean, obviously there's a practice of slavery. Equality, even recognized in theory, wasn't necessarily recognized in practice. Um, this is what Thomas Jefferson said uh, in June 1826, as the nation was preparing to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence. Do you know the story of Jefferson's death? Yes, no, a little bit. Okay, so there, there are two men most responsible for the Declaration of Independence. Do you know who they were? Any guesses? Have you seen the, the miniseries, the John Adams miniseries? Uh, yeah, uh, the HBO did it. How many of you have seen this? Okay, a couple of you. This is sort of older now. Um, I was in the student union. That's, I was sort of hanging out in the student union uh, before eating gummies and uh, looking at your posters. I, I, you show old movies here. So there's a movie series you should, you should, uh, you should watch. It's very good on America. It's called John Adams. It was made on 10 years ago. How many of you have seen it? It's good, right? And I, I particularly, it's like six episodes. I particularly like the um, episode on the creation of the Declaration of Independence. So, um, I mean, George Washington is the indispensable man, but he's out fighting the troops, leading the troops of battle. John Adams is trying to get the Americans to declare independence. Um, at, at the end of the Declaration, where they say we pledge our lives liberty, our lives, fortunes, and sacred honor. The people, who's pledging their lives, fortunes, and sacred honor? The signers of the Declaration of Independence. And they are literally pledging their lives. Why? Because to declare independence is to commit an act of treason. And what is the punishment for treason? Death. So you can see why you know, people not, might not have wanted to declare independence. And a third of the country is loyalists. You, you remind me of my wife. My wife went to Thomas Aquinas College, right? And you know, she's like, she 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 could do like like original geometry in Euclid. But then I say things, you know, World War II, and she's like, ah, you didn't get there. <laughs> <laughs> what, what was that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so John Adams is trying to get the Americans to declare independence, and he's the leading figure to, to that gets gets the leading Americans over the hump to do so. And um, one of the reasons I like this miniseries is because I mean, all these guys were incredibly vain, but especially Adams. And he knew. I mean, he thought, look, we're about to uh, have revolution against the, the the world power of the time. If we succeed, we'll become immortal, right? Famous. Um, 
Right? And he knew whoever authored the Declaration of Independence would be remembered in history, assuming the Americans won. Uh, but he turns it over to Thomas Jefferson to draft the Declaration because he knows Jefferson will do a better job than him. And if you've read John Adams, you too know that that is true. <laughs> So Jefferson and Adams really are the two individuals most responsible that, for the Declaration of Independence being written and existing. They both die on July 4, 1826. This is you know, one of these small nuggets of evidence of problems. Right before July 4, 1826, the country's going to have a huge celebration. And can you imagine this? Thomas Jefferson is alive. It's 50 years in the future, what America must have thought of him. Thought of him. And they write to him and they say, we're gonna have this celebration in Philadelphia, will you please join us? And Jefferson probably knows he's dying. You know, he's an old man. And he writes this letter back to them. You know, I, I wish I could be there, it'd be wonderful, I can't be there. And then he writes this, and he gives an interpretation of the Declaration of Independence. He writes, all eyes are opened are opening to the rights of man. The general spread of the light of science has already laid open to every view the palpable truth. The mass of mankind have not been born with saddles on their back, nor a favored few booted and spurred, ready to ride them legitimately by the grace of God. So horses, too, are not born with saddles on their back. But it's legitimate that men break horses, saddle them, and ride them for our own purposes. A good owner should you know, treat you should treat your horse well. You said we should treat your horse humanely. But we may own horses. We may appropriate their labor because of the natural species inequality between animals and men. No similar natural inequality exists among human beings, Jefferson is saying. Jefferson's point is that no man may legitimately rule another man like a man rules an animal because all men by nature, all men and women, equally have a natural title to exercise dominion over their own lives and liberty. All men created equal means that no man by nature is the rightful ruler or owner of another man. And this means, yes, Jefferson understood that slavery was unjust. So he was a hypocrite, but he understood what equality really meant. But notice that the Declaration and Jefferson in his commentary on it ground the truth of human equality in the creative order of nature. The founders do not say, we here are declaring the truth of human equality because that's what we have decided. We choose to make men equal. Willful choice is not their starting point. Nature and nature's God are the created order of nature which sets the moral standards for human behavior. So the founders do not deny that human beings are relational creatures, that they flourish in political communities. They simply say that legitimate political relations require consent, because if all men are created equal, if no man by nature is meant to, right, if no man by nature has a natural title to rule other men, legitimate government is only via consent. Jefferson in his personal life Constitution and its original protections of slavery failed to respect the Declaration's principle of natural equality. 
But whatever their deficiencies in practice, the principles they articulated recognize the truth about man. Remember, the first point is, is there an objective truth? They reflect the truth about man that is established by God and discerned by reflection on human nature and mankind's place within God's creation. In giving mankind our common human reason and freedom, God made man equal. The Declaration recognizes this truth, and in that sense, lies within the natural law tradition. Indeed, the Declaration's natural law principles are the very basis of our just criticism of the Founders' practice of slavery. Now, to say that the Declaration is a natural law document, or the founding is a natural law, um, they created a natural law republic, it's not to say that it's a Thomistic document. The natural law truth that the Declaration recognizes contains a claim about human freedom, that God created all individuals equal in their natural rights to life and liberty, natural right to property. Aristotle and Thomas Aquinas might not concur in full, but this is a debate among natural law thinkers about the nature of human freedom. It's not that Americans reject natural law on the one hand and Aquinas and Aristotle accept it. So the founders embrace of liberty does not mean that they conceive the human person as an autonomous individual. They did not reject the Aristotelian idea that man is a political animal. Far from it. Our natural independence or self-dominion is part of the founders' argument about natural authority and how human beings can rightfully institute political authority among themselves. So again, the founders do not, not deny that we are relational human beings, that we flourish in political communities, we, they simply contend that legitimate political relations require consent. Because all men are created, created equal, again, which is to say that by nature no man has been born with a saddle on his back or other men born booted and spurred ready to ride them legitimately. Because we are all equal, the legitimate rule of men over other men is by consent. So consent follows from human equality. We see this in Article 1 of Virginia's Declaration of Rights. So one of my first questions to the, the integralists of our day, they, they tend to reject consent. But this implies they reject human equality. So the first question is, are all men truly equal or not? And I think it's hard to defend integralism without rejecting equality. Okay, the Founders' understanding of the natural right to liberty also does not mean that our choices are unbounded by moral norms. The Founders distinguished liberty from license. They understood liberty to be the exercise of freedom consistent with the precepts of the natural law. They understood license to be the exercise of freedom contrary to the natural law's precepts. So the Founders rejected Hobbes. How many of you have read Hobbes? Okay, many of you. Okay. How many of you read the Federalist Papers? This is what Hamilton, the young Alexander Hamilton, he's barely older than you, said about Hobbes. Now the context is that Hobbes is responding to a loyalist. This is uh, it's in 1774, 1775. It's before the Declaration of Independence. And these, this, lo this Tory, this loyalist, is saying, you founders, and talking about natural rights, you sound just like Hobbes. And Hamilton writes in response, good and wise men in all ages have embraced, embraced a very dissimilar theory. That is, we're different from Hobbes. 
They have supposed that the deity, from the relations we stand in him to himself and each other, has constituted an eternal and immutable law. Right? This is the law of nature. Right. On this mor morally obligatory law of nature, Hamilton concludes, depends the rights of mankind. In a state of nature, no man has any moral power to deprive another man, legitimate power that is, of his life, liberty, life, limbs, property, or liberty. Hamilton scorns Hobbes because like the founders more generally, he understood natural rights to, and natural, to nat, natural rights to be correlates of natural duties, and both to come from the natural law. So natural rights are part of the natural law. Uh, my friend Hadley Arcus likes to say, the founders did not believe in a right to do wrong. That is, there's no right to break the natural moral law, because the natural rights are part of the natural moral law. This is what James Wilson, an underappreciated founder said about our natural liberty. He said, in a state of natural liberty, this is a state of nature where there's no political authority. In a state of natural liberty, everyone is allowed to act according to his inclinations, provided he not tra transgress those limits which are assigned to him by the law of nature. So elsewhere he says, the law of nature are the measure and the rule. They ascertain the limits and extent of natural liberty. So natural rights in the Founders' understanding are not opposed to the idea of binding moral obligations. The Founders did not conceive the rights-bearing individual as an unencumbered, autonomous self. We have rights on account of our God-given nature, our, our reason and freedom. That's the essence of man. These attributes of human nature establish both the grounds of our rights and the limits to them. We are rights and duty-bearing individuals because we're part of the, crea the Creator's moral universe. We are subject accordingly to the natural moral law. Indeed, the nature of our duties to God is the underlying purpose for creating a liberal political order in the first place. Right? This quote is from Madison's Memorial and Remonstrance. Because we are made to worship God freely, because we are called to love God, and because love can only be given freely, we have a right to do so. Our rights follow from our duties, and our duties imply rights. Our duty to worship the Creator according to conviction and conscience demands that religion be free from state control. Liberalism accordingly recognizes that religious authority and the teachings of religious truth properly fall under the domain of churches alone. The liberal state is a limited state. It's limited to safeguarding liberty because religious truth lies beyond its authority. In disparaging liberalism, the radical Catholics, perhaps unwittingly, raised doubts about the propriety of the separation of church and state and about the legitimacy of religious freedom. Okay. One might accept this defense I've sketched of the American founding, yet still find persuasive uh, an aspect of the radical uh, Catholic critique of, of America, that whatever our original character, whatever our original principles, in practice, we live in a decadent and deplorable legal culture. Even if the founders accepted the natural law, even if I'm right about all this, how do you explain where we are now? 
An honest assessment of America and our history must acknowledge that there's something to this criticism. The founders held that the primary purpose of government is to protect natural rights. They believed a just political order would preserve freedom for its citizens, but it would not necessarily command, that is the state would not command us citizens to use our freedom well. But if we are no longer sufficiently virtuous as a people, I would say the fault is primarily ours, not our founding principles. Critics hone in on this point in their identification of America as part of the modern philosophical project of emancipation. That's a project that begins with Hobbes and um, Bacon. But project assumes that some mastermind stands behind the helm. I think this criticism fails to recognize the reality and implications of human freedom. Um, we call America an experiment. The founders understood that every generation would need to be taught to use their freedom well. I mean, what is this like? What is Christendom College? What are you learning? You're learning to use your, your talents, your reason, your moral freedom to become good. That's something that every generation has to learn for itself. That's why Christendom College exists. To live this life well in preparation for the next. To learn to, to save your souls. It is true that the founders did not embrace Aristotle's teachings that the purpose of politics is to make us virtuous. The founders did not embrace the teaching that law should be used to coercively habituate us to virtue. But the founders did understand that a constitutional republic would depend on virtue for its success. Our constitution was made for a moral and religious people, John Adams said. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. This is why America is an experiment. I mean, the, the question is, can a, can a free people remain virtuous? Can they behave well enough to deserve their freedom? But if we're no longer sufficiently virtuous, the fault primarily lies with us, not our principles. Our political and economic institutions have never been perfect, but aside from slavery and its legacy, they've never been so corrupt as to make virtuous living impossible. Original sin may make corruption probable, political liberty makes it possible, but the cause of our bad behavior is ourselves in our deliberately turning away from the good. If that's true, I mean, basically, there's a, there's a deterministic element uh, in the critics uh, that I think is wrong. If what I've, said is, what I've just said is true, it means the solution to our problems primarily lies, to a large extent, in our own choices. To choose well, we must regain both political wisdom and the character that befits a constitutional people. We have to become reacquainted with our liberal principles we have to become reacquainted with the idea of the natural law, an obligatory moral law that we are bound to follow. How do we do that? I mean, that's, I, I'm not sure. I know that's necessary. I don't know how we get there. I mean, think of your, I mean, this is a, a unique place to give this talk. Um, I mean, so don't think of you and your friends. Think of your friends who are uh, uh, maybe your high school friends. Teenagers and young adults your age in America. 
how do we foster a sense of natural right and wrong? How do you reassert nature as a moral authority? In a way, that's the great project before us. Because if we can't do that, right, we as a nation won't survive. I doubt we can do that without some sort of religious revival. I mean, I, I don't know. But we need a return to morality. Because morality is the precondition of political freedom. I, I'm sure of that. Um, as an example, I sketched out here, take freedom of association. Right? The idea that you should freely be able to associate with whomever you want for whatever, whatever purposes you want. Um, if people think you'll use your freedom badly, your freedom of association, you'll, you'll form um, groups that are hostile to the common good, or take freedom of speech, right? If, you, if you're going to abuse your speech, people are going to turn against freedom of speech and turn against freedom of association. It's just a natural course of things. Our political well-being also, besides morality, individual morality, has always depended on you know, what social scientists call non-governmental institutions, what more normal people call the family and church. It's no surprise to me that our cultural decline um, has corresponded to the weakening of the family and of religious faith. I mean, one of the most interesting and important phenomena of our time is an utter collapse of mainline Protestantism. Right? The center of American politics, mainline Protestants, right, who are moral and stable. Those institutions, I mean, the average age of an Episcopalian today is what? Do you have any idea? Like 82 or something like that. That was unthinkable 50 years ago. The mainline Protestantism has just been decimated. That has had huge political effects. The family has been decimated. It's, it's difficult to grow up without a father. And it's heroic. Single parents are heroic. But that is terrible for a culture. Okay, okay so recovery of morality, a recovery of family and churches, also a recovery of the rule of law. We have to recover our constitutional character. What does that mean? I mean, let me just sketch a few things. I mean, those who govern us have to govern us according to the Constitution. That the Constitution no longer governs us in practice, or only partially governs us, I mean, that's an old story. But when Congress evades accountability by improperly delegating its legislative authority, uh, here I'm thinking of the rise of the administrative state, or when a president, and both parties do this, when presidents simply say they don't have to enforce the law, it teaches the American people that there are no rules and no laws that govern us. The only limitations on power are what you can get away with. And this is doubly true of the Supreme Court, which seems to admit no restraint on transforming the Constitution into whatever the justices' moral and social preferences are. We cannot expect the people to restrain themselves and act responsibly and I expect the people to be moderate and self-restrained when those who govern us fail to exercise self-restraint and abide by the Constitution. A revival of constitutionalism will require a revival of limited government. 
skip ahead here. I'm going to be very eager to talk to you. Um, let me give you one final example here. This, I, I rewrote, did you study Lincoln? <laughs> if, the president, if the president of Christendom watches this, you need to hire someone who will teach Lincoln. <laughs> you should all study the, you study the, the Republic? The first book of the, what's the first book of the Republic about? Remember there's this guy, Thrasymachus? What does he say? Yeah, justice. And what does Thrasymachus say justice is? <laughs> justice is... Yeah, the advantage of the stronger. And what does that mean? Justice are the rules that the strong impose on the weak. Right? That is, there is no justice. I mean, this is very popular, this is a very fashionable idea today, right? in elite circles, right? There's, re there's really no moral order, just the strong impose the moral order, and they, they make people obey. That's their simicus. That's what the Republic's all about. You should all read the Republic. I mean. You should also read the Lincoln-Douglas debates, because the debate between Abraham Lincoln and Stephen Douglas is exactly the same. And the debate between Lincoln and Douglas mirrors perfectly our debate about abortion. So what I've taken, I've just rewritten here a passage from Lincoln's Peoria address, a speech he gives in 1854. And I've taken out references to slavery and put in references to abortion. Lincoln was the great savior of our republic. And in his speeches, in his thought, he, he paves a path for us to follow today when we want to defend life. So this is the fi my final criticism of the radical Catholic critique of America. Ultimately, it undermines the pro-life cause. They hold implicitly that Roe and Casey, that these Supreme Court opinions that created and defined the right to abortion, Implicitly, they say, Roe and Casey actually follow from a proper understanding of American principles. That's wrong. The radical Catholics misinterpret America, and this is no academic matter. Their mistakes blind us to how our liberal principles offer a moral framework in which to support life. They are unable to appreciate the greatness of Lincoln and our own constitutional tradition. They are unable to appropriate Lincoln's moral wisdom and his constitutional statesmanship. There's a lot of talk of local community, of tradition, and relationship to the past, but the radical Catholics fail to understand their own community, their own traditions, and what's good and noble about America. And in doing so, and this in a way is one of my main concerns, radical Catholicism alienates from the American experiment those who should be America's most, most faithful friends. You. Young Americans who should love their country. 
Because if liberalism is unattractive, if the Supreme Court jurisprudence on abortion is a fulfillment of American political principles, why would you ever fight for America? Why would you run for office, be on a school board, try to preserve your community if the whole political regime is corrupt? The political alienation radical Catholics foster among the young, and, and I mean you, literally I mean you, cannot help but help engender disdain for engaged citizenship and responsible patriotism, especially our, among our young Orthodox Catholics. And this, you are the citizens America needs most right now. Our current political situation illustrates that a decent democratic self-government cannot be taken for granted. Our experiment in liberal constitutionalism is just that, an experiment that can fail if not properly sustained. Insofar as America is a set of principles and ideals, I think she must be understood if she is to be fully appreciated. And it is only by coming to understand the actual principles of our American liberal regime that one can see how truly lovable she is and why she remains worthy of our devotion. Thank you very much. Thank <laughs> you.